0: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts.
1: I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we continue our reporting from the ground in Donbass with Roland Oliphant. We bring you diplomatic updates from across the world, and we discuss the role of the Russian Orthodox Church and its ties to the Kremlin.
0: This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine
1: has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us.
2: We're strong. We're Ukrainians.
1: Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 1st of February, day 343. And with me to discuss the most recent events in Ukraine, I'm joined by our Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, from Donbass, Senior Foreign Correspondent Roland Oliphant, our Assistant Comment Editor Francis Sternley, and our guest is Analyst and Researcher Olga Lautmann, a Senior Fellow at CEPA, that's the Centre for European Policy Analysis, and host of the Kremlin File podcast. Dom Nichols, can I come to you? What have you been looking at?
3: The area that Donbass where Roland is is uh, is incredibly violent at the moment and very confusing. So so differing reports about the town of Bakhmut which is a major crossroads in the eastern Donbass. Uh, Russia is claiming that it is encircling, not has encircled, but is encircling Bakhmut. I think that's what we've been seeing for the last few days. But but I mean, it's not it is not completely encircled. They're trying to take control of the highway connecting that city to Yar, where Roland's been reporting from in in recent days. Uh, it, looking at the Institute for the Study of War, U.S. based think tank, they're saying that the that Bakhmut is still uh, very very violent, and that the Wagner Group, although they they culminated, which is the military expression, meaning that they can can no longer take offensive action; they're exhausted, basically not going backwards, but no longer take offensive action. So the Wagner Group culminated, but Russia has backfilled that area with uh, conventional forces to keep keep pushing on. Uh, Bakhmut is 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 very it's not just symbolic for Russia. They've been attacking it for well, nearly a year now. Um, they started very, very early on in this latest phase of the war. But um, it is a it is a crossroads. It is a logistic a logistic hub in its own right. So it does have operational value, maybe not strategic value, but it has has operational value. So the ISW was saying they're quoting the head of a Ukrainian unit in the area, Denis Yarolavsky, saying that Russia has put in what he calls quote super qualified. Unquote Russian conventional military troops backing up Wagner. Now, I was in a briefing yesterday. The reason I had to dash from the from the pod yesterday was that I went to a a briefing with a Western official, and um, the Western official was saying that Solidar, which is the town just about five k's to the north uh, northeast of um, of Bakhmut, uh, Solidar for Russia was a pyrrhic victory. That's what the, the Western official was calling it a pyrrhic victory, and said that several thousand casualties were lost for, uh, to secure a ruined town with about 500 inhabitants. And the Western officials said it Solidar was a sideshow of a sideshow, but a step towards Russia's attempts to take the larger town of Bakhmut, which has been trying to achieve since May. Now, regarding any possible Ukrainian withdrawal from Bakhmut, and there's no suggestion that's happening at the moment, but just Um, In terms of thinking about ahead and and what, what might come, the Western official, talking about any possible future withdrawal, said, quote, Ukrainians have been very good in the past about choosing when to withdraw. Severodonetsk was an example of that. They didn't suffer many casualties as a consequence and redrew their defensive lines. They are constantly building the next level of fortification so they can fall back to it if required. It's a matter of judgment about when to do that or indeed if to do that. The official went on. Bakhmut is a devastating First World War like operating environment. Both sides are suffering from logistic challenges. There is parity in the force ratio, even though on paper, Russia has greater mass. What we've seen is they haven't been able to employ that successfully on the battlefield. Ukraine has the advantage of superior Western military equipment. Uh, Plus, there's been some poor decision making on the Russian side, coupled with some pretty agile thinking on the Ukrainian side. The official finished. When you stack up all of these positives and negatives, you end up in a sort of grinding conflict, which at the moment looks like it continues through 2023 unless something significant changes, unquote. So hugely, hugely violent. There is going to be changes of territory that we, we are seeing that that has happened. It will happen again um, for all the the might that Russia is throwing at it, though. This, they are making tiny advances and it's it is costing them dear. Uh other social media posts that we can see unverified, but um, there's quite a number of them saying that or reiterating that that suggestion that the that the quality Russian troops or those experienced, I should say, are are just simply not there anymore. They are either dead, wounded, or or back. They you know somebody needs to go back to train these new mobilized uh, mobilized soldiers in in Russia. So what's happening at the moment seems to be that that Russia is going for mass. They are just pushing people forward. The Ukrainians are calling them meat battalions. They are just running forward at Ukrainian lines and trying to overwhelm them. At the moment, that's not happening. Um, it is very contested. It's difficult to get news out, as we've, we've literally just heard from from Roland, but it seems as if the town of Bakhmut is still in Ukrainian hands. There are efforts from Russia to push around to the south and to the southwest, um, but it is not, not yet encircled, and that, um, that fight is still going on. Thanks very much uh, for that, Dom. In Roland, uh, where are you and what have you been seeing?
2: Hi there, once again in the in, in the glorious Telegraph studio, which means the backseat of the car, uh, <laughs> somewhere somewhere in the Donbass. What have I been doing? I mean, what can I tell you? I know it's a bit hackneyed with me. I always talk about the fog of war and kind of mo- commit the enormous journalistic crime of saying, well, I don't know. This, this is what I can tell you. So yesterday, I think it's pretty clear the Russians made quite serious push on, on Bakhmut and on the area of Bakhmut and I think probably to try and cut that road, that, that southern road between um, Konstantinovko and, and Bakhmut. It was very loud there was a lot of firing and there was a degree of, I wouldn't say panic, a very see panic around here but definitely worry, definitely despondency and I was getting kind of told late last night that the situation has changed the line's changing quickly, Bakhmut might have been possible to, to get in there now it's extremely dangerous, at least one of the units I know is there, apparently it came on a really intense shelling this morning or by this afternoon well by now so we're talking let's see it's 10 past three and i'm in donbass so whatever time was it 10 past one with you chaps the the mood's completely changed so i've I've, I've just had word from a ukrainian officer who was literally yesterday kind of transporting transmitting telling me all the stuff i've just told you who's basically told us the russians have been pushed back from the gains they made he's just been in and out of Bakhmut today and he said quote unquote it was all right um so the russian claim of operational encirclement that was the claim we had from an, an official from the so-called Donetsk people's republic earlier today i don't think that's true i don't think there is what you could call an operational encirclement although i will always stand to be i will defer to dom if there is a i'm not getting the definition right maybe maybe there is but i'll tell you what is going on what is going on is that you've got these to help readers let's draw a map. okay draw draw a perpendicular line a horizontal sorry a horizontal line on a bit of paper then you draw two lines parallel lines perpendicular straight down All right now the one on the left is so the top line is the, the siversky Donets River. The left line is the, the Tarets River, that's where Kramatorsk and, and Slavyansk and Konstantinovka are. And then the right-hand vertical line is the Bakhmutska River. And that is, as the name suggests, where Bakhmut is. Now between those two lines, you've got a h- huge series of hills, quite quite big ridges, high ground that the Ukrainians are hanging on to. Now, if you, you go down and below the, the perpendicular river line, draw another line linking those two perpendicular lines left to right and then draw another line above that and those are your two roads the first one the lower one is the road between Konstantinovka and Bakhmut now that is a good road a good metal paved highway that takes you straight in there that was what we were using all the time that was if you were going from here to to Bakhmut that's what you would use the Russians we think are within about two kilometers of that road on the southern side and they're trying to push it and then trying to get across that and then Go and cut that second road further north, which is the one that goes through Chassovyard that I was talking about yesterday. Now, I spoke to some soldiers who've just come out of Bakhmut this morning down in Konstantinovka. They did a they'd done a two-month tour in there and said all the things you expect about how grim it was. Their take on that road, that that road, main road from Konstantinovka, is you can still do it if you put the pedal to the floor and you drive like crazy. Um, it's under fire, they're hitting it all the time, you can speed through. The safest way is through the Chasiv Yar route. However, so we know some Ukrainian journalists who drove that route yesterday, and they witnessed two civilian cars with with human bodies in that had been hit on that road at some point yesterday. I had a report. I can't confirm it. I was told that another another team had their car destroyed while they were inside a building reporting in inside the city. So both routes are under fire, but I don't think either of them have been cut yet. I think. I think the way to take that statement from the, the Donetsk People's Republic, the, the Russian statement, basically, about operational encirclement, I certainly think that is a statement of intent and aspiration. I certainly think that's what they're trying to do. And anyone around who you talk to, from officers down to like rank-and-file squaddies, everyone thinks that's what they're trying to do. But I don't think they've done it yet. Um, coming back to what Dom was saying from the Western official about, oh, Solidar was a Pyrrhic victory and so on, I mean, I've i have i i personally feel like they're kind of kind of spin that a little bit because okay yes that chimes with what you know what the squaddies are saying so i was speaking to a couple of paratroopers who fought in the solid earlier this afternoon i grabbed a coffee with them and they were describing they were saying look like you know they, they were sending just like these waves of people at us just waves and waves of with them without armor support without artillery support and you just be gunning them down but they just keep coming they keep coming and there's just not enough ammunition. So they, they were talking about kind of, you'd be holding a strong point and hoping that, you know, someone on your, you're meant to cover the right and the left because it's a vantage point. But there should be someone else covering your right as well and someone on your left. Uh, and there wouldn't be. And artillery support would be slow to come. There wouldn't be enough kind of armor. You'd run out of ammo and you'd have to like be exposed going back four or five kilometers to get more ammo. So it's a it's a pretty... Although the Russians definitely are taking a lot of casualties and they're they're not kind of worrying about how many of their guys die doing this, the sheer weight of numbers being brought to bear in this sector, I think is telling. And I think the general atmosphere, the general sense here is that eventually, if it carries on with, with this sheer scale of force the Russians have brought to bear, that is gonna that is gonna tell. And my educated guess my educated guess would be. In line uh, with what that Western official told Dom, which is that there will be eventually, perhaps, a fallback to a you know to another prepared line, um, but that uh, you know it's kind of defence in depth. I think that's probably what's going on here. But as I say, kind of today, the sense is that the situation in Bakhmut is slightly stabilised from yesterday.
1: Thanks, Roland. Can we talk a little bit about your dispatch, which was in today's paper, as well as talking to? soldiers you've also been talking to civilians many of whom are understandably trying to leave can you tell us about the people you interviewed
2: yeah so we're back up in um Yar the other day which is i, I was explaining in the podcast the other day is that is the, the the little town that sits on that that second road that that safer road that's a bit further from from the russians attempted encirclement it's it, it's one of these places that is not quite it's not quite the front line but it's it's going to be the front line if Bakhmut falls and it is it is taking fire from time to time life's incredibly difficult and the mayor there is kind of preoccupied with a persuading people to leave look civilians you really got to get out and for those who aren't there he's kind of frantically kind of procuring i don't know building materials kind of stuff to a lot of houses a lot of flats have lost their windows so he's kind of desperately kind of procuring stuff to patch that up because it's winter, heating, all, all, all this kind of thing. And the thing is with these towns, as they empty, as the war gets closer, and this is a pattern, You, you we've seen it again and again and again and again. Those who can leave, leave. Right? If, you, if you're if you able-bodied and you got a car and money or just somewhere to go, you go and so you end up with a massively disproportionate number of the people who are left are basically very elderly or disabled, people who are immobile. And it's them and their carers. That's not everybody, but it's, it's a large proportion. So we were, um, were we were in town yesterday, and there's a there's a group of Finnish volunteers. There's some Ukrainian volunteers, and also some Finnish volunteers. Kind of organisations running these these voluntary evacuations for people. And 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 part of what they're trying to do is kind of persuade people it's time to go. But a lot of people aren't ready. You know, it, it's such a big decision to make, right? But okay, I've got to give up everything. i got to give my flat. I don't know where I'm going and, and and when I'm going to come back. And you've got to make this decision about what you're going to leave behind and things like that. And there, there's one woman there who had come from Kiev. She was in her 70s. She was 71. And she had she was born in Yar, moved away, I think, in her 20s. You know, she'd, li- she'd lived elsewhere. She now lives in Kiev. That's where her family are. Both her sons are in the army. And she came back a month ago to look after her elderly mother. Her mother is 92, living alone in you know a very ordinary residential flat but you know she's 92 she's she's almost immobile she's had a couple of fools all of that and she didn't want to leave she I mean she was she was her daughter was saying to me you know she's she's disoriented she doesn't really grasp what's going on all she knows is that something frightening is happening she thinks people are going to come and kill her and she was saying to the so she comes down to this this evacuation point and grabs these guys says look I've, I've persuaded her it's time to get out we got to go but you're gonna to have to come and get her because can you come and get her because you know she she basically can't move so we went around there with with a couple of these Finnish guys who helped her down the stairs kind of agonizingly slowly and it was you know it, it, was, it was a tough thing i mean this is this is a this is an extremely old woman who really shouldn't be moved anywhere but there there is literally no choice I mean you know the the it was incredibly loud there yesterday um, You could hear this kind of frantic battle going on just a few miles away with this Russian push that was going on at the same time. And anyway, I got her down the stairs into the van and she and her daughter set off. They have a place to go. There was a, the, the, they had train tickets. They, you know, get to Kramatorsk, get on the train back to Kiev. There's family waiting for them a lot of people don't have that there were there were other people coming down and saying oh there's a guy guy a guy who's who's, who's not, wife's knees are gone she's been waiting for an operation for ages she can't get out of the house and it was kind of inquiring about could you come and get her well yeah do you want us to well not yet so people kind of you find yourself coming to terms, toying with the eye, drifting towards this inevitable decision of what you're going to have to do, but not being quite there yet. And and of course, it's a race against time, right? Because eventually it's going to be too late to make this decision because if the Russian tide keeps rising, if they keep making advances, eventually that is going to be a frontline town and it is going to be as badly destroyed as Bagmut.
1: Thanks, Roland. Just one quick question from me. You mentioned the, the Finnish volunteers you encountered who are sort of there helping people um Helping people evacuate. What's your experience of of the foreign volunteers that you've come across in in, in all of your reporting? Um, I'm, I'm kind of curious about that. We've talked to quite a few volunteers who are doing different things in, in Ukraine, but what's what have you come across? What do you make of them?
2: I mean, there's it's, it's a huge number of people. Um, I think most of them are really genuinely dedicated people who want to help. Um, and uh, in in this case, I mean, there, there wasn't many other people offering help. I mean, there, there were there was a um, there was a Ukrainian bunch of volunteers also, you know, volunteers running an evacuation that day as well. But apart from then, I mean, that that that's your option to get out. Um, so I think, you know, in that particular instance, incredibly important. Um, you meet all sorts going around, all sorts of people running organisations that of, you know, kind of varying kind of connection with the authorities or the military or so on and so forth um i mean i I'd, I'd be hesitant to kind of say this is what foreign volunteer is um because partly because they do such varied things you know there's the i think there's the scottish guys who like make pizzas great you know <laughs> and deliver them then you have guys like this who are um have decided what we're going to do is we're going to go and get civilians out of really dangerous places um and that's uh that's a really necessary and very brave and actually very dangerous thing to do. I mean, those, those two um, two Brits were killed doing that in the Solidar um, just a few weeks ago. Um, and then you have you know people who are who are actually fighting, um, so on and so forth. I mean, war war is something that does attract like certain characters, and there are there are the heroes, there are the, um, the people who want to do their bit. Um, I mean, there's also there's always a few whack jobs around as well. Um, I, I'm not not including anyone who I met yesterday in that in that category, but you you will meet people knocking around a war zone who, you know, you'll you'll be thinking like, God, you know, what's that person doing here? What what are they really up to? Um, so a very a very very varied varied kind of um, kind of field. But I think what those guys were doing was basically, um, you know, an extremely an extremely important and ultimately life-saving thing.
1: Well, thank you very much, um, Roland. Francis Sternley, you've got quite
0: a few diplomatic updates. Um, talk us through them. Well, thanks, David. And do stay safe, Roland. Extraordinary hearing your reports. I want to start with military donations to Ukraine. The biggest one that we're hearing about today is that Washington is preparing to send a $2 billion package of military aid to Ukraine, including missiles with the range to cover almost the entire country. That's according to US officials who say that the announcement will likely come this week. That's according to Reuters. Now, this will be the first time that ground launch small diameter bombs, that's GLSDB, a new weapon that was designed by Boeing, which I think we've touched on in the past on the podcast, would be sent. Now, these are cheap gliding missiles that have a range of more than 90 miles, that's about 150 kilometers, due to fold out wings which extend their range. That's a dramatic increase of over 80 kilometers range of the HIMAR rocket systems, which, of course, have changed the face of this war when Washington sent them last summer. It would mean now that every inch of Russian-occupied Ukraine, apart from most of the Crimean Peninsula, interestingly, would be in range of Ukrainian forces, which would likely force Moscow to redistribute ammunition and fuel shortage sites. In terms of other donations, Spain are planning to send four and uh, between four and six, should I say, German built leopard tanks to Ukraine. That's obviously following their permission being granted by Germany. The actual number will depend on the condition of the battle tanks in storage and how many other countries will eventually supply to Ukraine. But I mention it just to talk to this tally that continues to increase uh, as the days go by. Uh, On the question of planes, some very striking remarks by the Czech president-elect, Peter Pavel, who we've already spoken about at length this week. He's told the BBC in an interview that, in his view, uh, the F-16s planes, of course, the fighter jets that we've spoken about at length, were not a taboo in terms of sending them. But he was unsure whether they could be delivered in a time frame that would prove useful to Kyiv. He also made some very other interesting remarks, which I just wanted to go over, which is he said that in his view, Ukraine should be allowed to join NATO as soon as the war is over. He is, of course, a retired NATO general. And in his view, Ukraine would be morally and practically ready to join the Western alliance once the conflict has ended. He also went on, I thought this was particularly interesting, going beyond the question of Ukraine. He says that in his view, EU states need to drop any illusions about China, saying that his country, of course, um, Czech Republic, would no longer behave like an ostrich over divergent interests with Beijing. And I'll read his quote in full. This is what we have to be very clear about. China and its regime is not a friendly country at this moment. It is not compatible with Western democracies in their strategic goals and principles. This is simply a fact that we have to recognize. Now, I should say that the first interview where he talked about Ukraine was in the BBC. That second one where he talked about China was with the Financial Times, and I'd highly recommend both, particularly the Financial Times one, just because of that extraordinary insight into his thinking on the geopolitical positioning with regard to China, which, of course, is an extensive issue we've covered on this podcast due to the relation to Ukraine, but also because of the broader... Issues of the geopolitical blocks sort of started to formulate as a consequence of the war. Just a couple of other pieces in the diplomatic space before I conclude. There's a big meeting, an EU summit meeting, Uh, due in Kyiv this week, and this is particularly on the question of whether uh, Ukraine will be permitted in the future to join the European Union. Yesterday, Vladimir Zelensky was saying that he hoped the summit, which we're expecting to happen on Friday, would reflect a high level of cooperation and progress with the rest of the bloc, which, of course, Kyiv has sought to join As part of this, we're expecting a formal announcement of what the current tank tally is. We're up to around 140, I think, by our calculations. But as I say, they are increasing all of the time. So that's quite interesting. And of course, we'll be following that more closely in the coming days. And just lastly, Japan is also preparing to host a group of the G7 summit meeting uh, timed with the one year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine on February 24th. That's according to a news agency over there. I conclude with that because, again, speaks to the theme that I touched on yesterday, which is the increasing role in which the Pacific is stepping up in its support, not only of Ukraine, but recognizing the geopolitical challenges that are taking place as a consequence of that as regards to China and Taiwan, but also as they're forming closer bonds with the rest of the Western powers. There have been numerous treaties that have been signed, most recently one with between Japan and Britain. And it's very, very interesting just, again, seeing the ripple effect as... Uh, countries begin to wake up to the increasing challenges posed by more autocratic regimes, which, of course, the war in Ukraine has, has drawn particular attention to. So lots going on in, in terms of a way that I think Ukraine would see as positive. A slightly more sceptical one in which to conclude, though, which is some interesting remarks from Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, who said that he's considering military aid to Ukraine. That would be, you know, quite that's quite noticeable that he said he's considering it. But I think it's fair to say, and Dom and I were talking about this earlier, Earlier on. His remarks are incredibly lukewarm, to say the least, at the notion. So he talks about that how Israel would be willing to serve as a mediator in the war, given the right circumstances. Um, But then goes on and talks about uh, how he doesn't want to make any firm commitments to Ukraine. He says he's looking into matters. Um, I've asked all of the relevant parties. I'll certainly consider playing a more senior diplomatic role, but I'm not pushing myself in. So, as I say, these are lukewarm, but there may be some signs of there being a little bit more of a shift in in a more pro-Ukrainian direction. But all of this needs to be contextualized in the fact that Israel does not want to upset Russia. Traditionally, in recent years, because of the role that it plays in enabling. Israel to strike in Syria, in neighbouring Syria, and turning a blind eye there to those strikes um, on, on all sorts of issues, and of course, because of Russia's brokerage role with regard to a future uh, a, um, Iran nuclear deal. So Israel finds itself in quite a, a delicate diplomatic situation, but there'll be many people who will be calling for Israel to do more, and are doing so, I should say. So no doubt we'll return to that again too. So a busy landscape today, David, but one that, as I say, will be turning to some of these things, I think, later in the week.
1: Thank you very much, Francis, uh, for that. Uh, it's a great pleasure now to welcome our guest, Olga Lautman. Olga, thank you so much for your time uh, today. Would you start just by introducing yourself to, to our listeners? Um, tell us a bit about yourself and your, your work and research.
4: Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. So I am a senior fellow at the Centre for European Policy Analysis, and I focus basically on the intersection of organised crime, intelligence services and the Kremlin. I am a senior researcher at the Institute for European uh, Integrity with the project where we are looking at NGOs that have been captured by foreign states in order to uh, run operations in Europe. And I am a coordinator for the Syria-Ukraine Network, and I basically work um, to connect Syrian groups with Ukrainian groups based on their expertise so we can, you know, uh, help document war crimes and all the atrocities happening in, um, Russia. But, um, I've been following Russia, their, uh, you know, domestic uh, politics and policies and military strategies my whole life, and, um, basically, you know, I've been trying to put out as much information as I can, uh, for uh, the people in the West who might not be as aware well,
1: thanks very much for that introduction. We wanted to talk to you to focus a little bit on the role of the uh, the Orthodox Church in Russia, um, there's an article you've written for, for SIPA, uh, an, orth- an unorthodox Russian vision of heaven and hell, which went into quite a bit of detail about what you see as the the, the roles, and to some extent the responsibility and the involvement of the religious establishment uh, in the state. And there was a lot in that, which I think would be of huge interest to our listeners. So could you just start for us and ju- just to set the scene, what is the religious landscape across the Russian Federation and where have you been focusing your attention?
4: So the religious landscape is very diverse. Obviously, the Russian Orthodox Church has the most followers. I believe around forty percent. Um, it's not a super religious, you know, society, but religion under over the past few decades has definitely gained prominence. Um, in it, but religion has a very long history in um Russia. Uh, during the Sars, uh, the Orthodox Church was used basically. To um, to, it was a tool of the state, and it was used, you know, to push that uh, the Tsars were enthroned by God, and that you must be loyal to them, not question them. And it was uh, also used by intelligence services to collect information on the par- uh, parishioners. And then we get to the Bolsheviks, who basically, you know, desecrated the churches, arrested the clergymen, tortured, assassinated some. And, you know, and the church for a while, you know, was not active. Then under Stalin, the church was rehabilitated. Even though Stalin himself was an atheist, he saw that the church can be used uh, as a tool during uh, to, um, you know, garner support uh, for World War II. Um, and he brought it in, but when he brought it in, he brought it in under the direct control of the NKGB, which is the predecessor to KGB, and then it went into KGB's hands. So the church was very carefully managed by the KGB intelligence services, and then we learned about this, actually, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, when, um, the, uh, Held a, had a commission and they basically, uh, you know, unlocked the files of the Orthodox Church revealing that, for instance, Patriarch Kirill was a, a KGB agent um, used to uh, infiltrate various organizations, uh, Patriarch um, Alexei was a KGB agent, and they saw the depth of the KGB services inside the church. Can we talk a little bit about Patriarch Kirill here? He's
1: a, a key character uh, in contemporary Russian on, on the contemporary Russian religious scene. Can you tell us a bit more about him? What's his history, and, and what's his relationship with, with with Putin and others in the establishment?
4: So, um, like I said, Patriarch Kirill was a KGB agent um, during uh, the Soviet Union um, under the Orthodox Church, and then when Putin came into power, he again. You know, revived the Orthodox Church to be used as a tool, and um, came to be—I think—came to be Patriarch Kirill became um, extremely wealthy, and you know, he has a very close relationship to Putin. Became wealthy, and the church basically was turned into another uh, like a tool of the intelligence services, both domestically and abroad. Well, we'll get onto that
1: later. I think. Um, Can I just? Uh, take you to something you've written in the article. You wrote that the church, quote, has been at the forefront of Russia's unprovoked all-out assault against Ukraine. Can you take us into that a little bit? How and why?
4: So, uh, the church has been used to push this, you know, uh, full-scale invasion in Ukraine. Um, Kirill came out and basically said that, uh, quote, anyone who sacrifices in the uh, course of carrying out their military Duty washes away all sins, but not only has the church fully supported Russia's genocide and aggression inside Ukraine, but um, they've also, a few months ago, actually started a mercenary group to recruit people to send to Ukraine, basically under the flag of the church. Um, the church later on, when you know it, and it became a scandal inside Russia, when the when that happened, they denied it, uh, but uh, one of the people who was heading the St. Andrew's Cross is the name of the mercenary group. His name is Vladimir Kilchenko. He said, in fact, the first PMC, or private military company, which, by the way, is illegal, side of Russia, under the Russian Orthodox Church. So, you know, he acknowledged in a local interview that St. Andrew's Cross indeed was the first private mercenary group were, you know, again, like I said, they are illegal, but that it was working under the doors of that church to recruit volunteers to send uh, to Ukraine for war. You
1: mentioned that Patriarch Kirill is is outspoken in his support of the inv- of the full-scale invasion and of President Putin. Do you get much of a sense of any dissension from, um, from the other clergy, or is it just too difficult to say um, a- a- across the entire federation?
4: I mean, for the most part, everybody is in full support. There was one clergy who spoke out against it and basically, you know, had to leave Russia. Um, but for the most part, everyone is talking to the Orthodox Church for, you know, uh, Russia's atrocities and in full support and making sure to try to garnish as much support as they can from their parishioners. You mentioned that, you know, their
1: interests are intertwined. So I'm just wondering, do you, I mean, do you think from your perspective, a personal perspective, that when Patriarch Kirill says, you know, if you go and fight, your your sins will be washed away, do you think he he really believes that? Or is that just uh, the right thing to say in support of the regime?
4: I think he actually does believe that because he's part of the old guard from the Soviet Union. And this is the thought and the hardliners are in full support of um you know, Russia's atrocities campaign because they do want to reinstate Ukraine and the Baltics and, you know, other former Soviet countries back into the Soviet Union because a lot of them have still not gotten over the collapse of the Soviet Union and the fact that, you know, these countries have basically moved forward and uh, sought democracies and established democratic government and so forth.
1: We've talked about Patriarch Kirill. Um, is there anyone else we should know about that's important and relevant in the, in this discussion?
4: Well, I believe Konstantin Malofey is probably one of the most important, and he became known he's actually indicted and sanctioned in Europe, indicted and sanctioned in the United States. He was at the forefront of Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea. He is one of the biggest uh, pro-Kremlin orthodox billionaires, runs, you know, uh, Several media looks appealing to the traditional values, but more so of what he does domestically is what he does across Europe and United States. In Europe, he has cultivated um, the far right in order to, uh, under the guise of traditional values, to bring in various religious groups. And then uh, they push a culture war in as part of their division operation. And we've been seeing this, you know, uh, play out over the past several years in Europe. And you see Russia's support for far-right candidates in Europe. They're financing. He actually financed um, Marie Le Pen. You have a huge um, operation running in Italy, in Germany. And the same thing with the United States, with um, the evangelical movement and other organizations. And here it's, again, for the same purpose of causing a uh, culture war, uh, causing divisions, because if you weaken a country, it's easier to implode it.
1: I'm curious as to how all of this plays out sort of from the pulpit, if you, if you like. Um, at the beginning of January was Orthodox Christmas. Can you tell us a little bit about how the church celebrated that? I mean, for example, you know, in the Anglican Church in, in the UK, we would hear Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury's Christmas message. Um, was there a Kirill equivalent? H- how, did the, h- how did any of this sort of play out in the actual sacraments, in, in the services themselves? Do we have an idea about that?
4: Well, I mean, uh, for a change, besides the atrocities we saw being committed, you know, during Orthodox Christmas when uh, the Kremlin offered their, you know, quote, unquote, ceasefire, um, the message coming from Patriot Kirill was very somber. He did mention the war, but he, you know, referred to it as, quote, special military operation. Um, and it was basically he asked people to pray for the wounded and dead. So it was nothing you know spectacular about his messaging at that point. You talked about you talked just then actually about the sort
1: of the cultural element of this of uh, f- of funding of encouraging division in, in foreign states. Do you think that the West is waking up to this threat as you see it, or is this something that's really not appreciated?
4: I think they haven't grasped fully the threat that comes out of the Orthodox Church, because it really is an appendage of, appendage of the Russian intelligence services. And it is really one of the last, uh, operations that are still running. And just to give you an example, the article I wrote for SIPA, I had posted it, you know, everything was fine, it was on Google, and then... Um, you know, I shared it with a few people and then suddenly got buried on Google, got shadow banned on um, Twitter, and it was extremely hard to find the article. And I spoke with SIPA about it. They looked into it, and indeed there was something going on there. So I reposted it. Finally, you know, my article was back on Google where it belongs. But the point is, it was a threat to Russia and their intelligence services because they did the last active, Intelligence branch that is operating in the United States across Europe, and obviously we see in Ukraine to the point that even Latvia a few months ago ordered the separation of the Latvian Orthodox Church from the Orthodox Church in Moscow, as a, and they called it a national security threat. Um, so the Eastern European countries obviously are recognizing the threat because they're always ahead the of the game because they are Russia's neighbors. And have been, you know, under direct assault and with various operations over the past few decades. But I don't think that the rest of Europe and the United States, you know, fully understands what is happening with the Orthodox Church. And that it is being used as a tool, you know, to to, uh, push, like I said, these culture wars uh, run division operations. And also cultivate, you know, leaders from main uh, religious parties across the globe. And now they've also focused heavily in Africa. We see uh, their influence in Syria. So I think it's something that, you know, the West really needs to wake up to as a threat.
1: I've got other questions as well. But just at this point, I think it would be good potentially to bring in Roland, Dom or Francis. Um we we, ha- we we really haven't touched a lot on on religion and the Orthodox Church in Russia, despite going for many many episodes. So th- this is uh, th- 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 we will absolutely do more on this. But thank you, Olga, for
0: for your answers. Uh, Roland Dom and Francis, do you have any questions? I do. Thank you very much, Olga, for your time today. I've got a couple of questions, if I may. The first one is perhaps the most simple, which is: What more can Western governments be doing to sanction some of these individuals? It seems that there is a real um, blind spot here in terms we've been we've been sanctioning oligarchs, but so little seems to be done to some of these very senior figures in the church. Is there more that should be being done, and how how can that be done?
4: Absolutely. I mean, are they for start? You know, seeing the Orthodox Church as a tool to subvert democracy and to run operations, and for starters, I mean, you know, we need to be a. a seeking out of the, uh, the council. And uh, the main figures in the church need to be sanctioned. In the U.S., I personally would love to see the church have to fill out a farah in order to show, you know, that they uh, their loyalty and direction is under the Russian Orthodox Church in Moscow. In Ukraine, um, in 2018, I believe, they actually started... Uh, you know, this and they like basically forced every church to uh, recognize way, where they are getting their. And if it was from Moscow, it had to be known so the parishioners know that this is coming, you know, the messaging is coming from um, Moscow. And even in Ukraine, um, you know, there have been several arrests over the past few months uh, with the Russian Orthodox Church, including one abbot who was uh, convicted as a spy, and he was basically passing information on activists, on military positions to the Russian army. So you have these churches, the people who are part of them, who are being used for espionage
0: operations during an act of war. Thank you. And my next question is relating to the authenticity of the faith of some of these patriarchs like Kirill. I mean, to be a true believer in communist doctrine, one was supposed to be an atheist and to denounce the church. And indeed, in the 1920s, 1930s, prior to Stalin, late late era Stalin, the church was really heavily persecuted. Churches were destroyed, their power stripped, etc. So... How do we reconcile that kind of attitude of communism with these former KGB agents who are now so high up in the church? Is it just pure Machiavellianism on their part? They see the power and the opportunity of the church and they leap on it. Or is there real true faith there, do you think? I just wonder if you've got any more thoughts on that theme.
4: I think um, it's for power. And I think, you know, they see that Putin was, you know, uh, like it was... And beneficial to them to align with Putin because they can promote, you know, the church. And at the same time, like I said, Patriarch well, Patriarch Kirill, he is one of the wealthiest people inside of Russia. So clearly there's, you know, financial uh, rewards that come for being head of the church. And I apologize, I wanted to correct something How World Council of Churches. I don't know why I'm thinking of Congress, but World Council of churches, um, they need to be removed from there. But getting back to your question, I think it has to do, you know, with power. I don't believe they ha- are true believers because, I mean, you know, there is there isn't that much of an ideology inside of, reform. I mean, under the communists, you had the ideology of communism. But now, I mean, over the past three decades since the collapse of the Soviet Union, Basically, the ideology is to make sure that Putin stays in power and he's able to rob the state and, you know, his uh, image uh, is in your circle protected.
3: Olga, hi, it's Dom here. Thanks so much for joining us today. I just have one question, please. And I, I just wonder if you could talk to us about the links between the Ukrainian and the Russian Orthodox churches and whether or not they were moving away from each other before Maidan and what what hap- what's happened since was that was that a moment where there was a complete schism and um and never the twain shall meet or did, are, there, are there still is there room behind the politics and the espionage and the and the kleptocracy for them to 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 still have any kind of relationship at a religious level
4: so in Ukraine, um, it actually it started moving away right towards Maidan, but still Maidan was kind of the, you know, you still had the pro-Russian support, and then you had uh, Ukrainians, and you see based on polling of, of you know, um, that has changed now. You have upwards of eighty plus people who want uh, in Ukraine who want to move towards Europe, towards the West, and only you know a small percentage. Who actually still believe that being close and aligned with Russia is the right path, um, but more so in 2018 under the former president um, Poroshenko, he signed a law um, requiring the Orthodox, um, the Moscow Patriarch to change his name, so the so the it could be shown that of their you know operations under uh, Moscow's Russian Orthodox Church. More so, you also have a breaking away between the churches, which was a huge for Russia. I mean, this really impurity them, where the Ukrainian church, Orthodox Church, basically developed their whole branch. So, um, you've definitely seen this moving away, and you've seen more focus, more so since last February, because now the church, like I said, I mean, the one rest I mentioned, there are you know several investigations then in, uh, purchase the first country or being used to actually pass intelligence to the russian army to russian intelligence uh, services and so of course thank you dom and francis for your questions um roland i don't know if you can
1: hear us i know your connection isn't great um but do you have anything to add or to or, or, or any questions
2: hello um I suppose, I mean, there's lots of things running through my mind because, of course, you know, the relationship between the church and the state and the secret services and, and all of this is, it's a huge theme, actually, um, that goes through things. I was wondering um, if you could comment on my kind of view or experience of kind of the Russian Orthodox Church in Russia, um, which is that, yes, there is the, the hierarchy linked to the Kremlin and which is, you know, very well-documented kind of, You know, since Stalin, you are only you only make it to the top if you're working for the KGB um, and all of that. But um, I've also encountered kind of you know parish priests um, who are real linchpins of of communities, um, people who perhaps don't have um, you know much connection or even you know that much sympathy for the for the higher ups in a sense. I mean, there's I don't know if you read a book by. uh oliver buller called the last man in russia which is about a parish priest who was basically the guy who was who was combating alcoholism basically he found a way to combat alcoholism and end up getting crushed by the hierarchy um, uh, in your view do you, do you view the the russian orthodox church as kind of you know rotten from top to bottom that the entire thing is um is is basically a, you know an fsb a russian state structure and suspect or or do you recognize that within it um there are nuances and differences. I mean, it's an enormous organization um, and that at at lower levels, um, there are perhaps people who, you know, don't have anything to do with that. Or do you think that everybody involved is compromised?
4: I um, definitely don't believe every single person involved is compromised. And in the case that you mentioned, this is where the problem becomes because there you have the security services so penetrated in the church that, you know, a a priest who actually wants, you know, to push policies. If they don't fall in line with what the hierarchy wants, then they will be either pushed out or silenced or, you know, sabotaged in what they are trying to do. So it's definitely not top to bottom, but the main decisions um, basically have to have the proof, approval of the Russian um, security services and the hierarchy.
1: Olga, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything we haven't spoken about uh, that you want to mention or to clarify, or a- a- anything that you know we haven't asked you that we th- you think maybe we should have talked about?
4: Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for covering this topic. Um, no, I think we have pretty much covered everything. And again, I just want people to understand the importance, and more so, you know, the uh, in Europe and United States um, to look at this as a tool, you know. And obviously we're not supposed to persecute every single church, but they should be monitored for running intelligence operations for, you know, their support. Even in the United States, a few local Russian Orthodox churches are absolutely cheering this, you know. And this is the death of innocent men, women, children inside of Ukraine uh, who did nothing to provoke Russia except having their own statehood. So I think, you know, I'm happy that you covered this topic, and uh, i um thank you for this uh, platform and I just hope you know that there are some actions taken to see that this is yet another tool
1: of some of subversion. Well, Olga, thank you so much uh, for your time. And yes, you've, you've definitely talked about several things that would be good to get into in the future. Um, this is what's, you know, often so interesting speaking to our guests is usually we we leave with more things to cover than the thing we've talked about. So thank you so much for your time. It was really fascinating. Um, and thank you, Roland, Dom and Francis for your thoughts on that as well. I thought that was a really interesting uh, discussion. Um, we're starting to run out of time together i'm afraid so can i go to all of you just for your very final thoughts so we'll go to potentially roland first because i know you have to get away and we'll end with olga so roland oliphant what what are you looking at in the next few days what would you want our listeners to go away and think about
2: i'm I'm going to be probably looking at this this epic battle in bakmu i mean the battle of bakmu is now i think the longest running battle of the war it's gone on for six months more than six months it's still going on it it it's this kind of it's like the the black hole at the center of a of a a galaxy almost i mean it sucks in all this stuff from both sides um and i think it's it just it's horrible but it it also kind of is the emblem it's, it's the absolute kind of distillation of this um this sense of stalemate but also of like i don't know sometimes almost indifference you know i kind of i kind of feel like you look at this and um you know dom was quoting a western official earlier saying well this looks like it's going to go on for a long time if it carries on like this well that's what everybody here says i mean you know i've been speaking to people who are like yeah we're looking like three four five years and you know russia's got you know x million you know tens of millions more people um than we have i mean the the the, the outlook here uh, it's just grim it's just it's just incredibly grim and i kind of um i mean At the risk of you know breaking the rules and getting emotional or you know getting angry i mean i i do wonder whether all these you know western leaders kind of patting themselves on the back for having finally after a year decided they're going to send some tanks um you know really have a have a grasp um of what is what is actually going on here. Um, I mean, if they if they actually, you know, if, if the West is serious about, yeah, actually, we want Ukraine to win the war. I mean, they've got to bloody do something about it um, because the way, I mean, what what we're looking at now at, at the moment is just it's just it, it cannot be allowed to carry on. It's just it, it it's years and years of you know bloodshed and and grimness that you know. Um, on paper if you you ask someone about do, do you think that's good do you think we should stop that kind of thing do you think that's something you should allow to happen of course you'd say no you know of course not you could but you know here we are and um, and I just I hate I hate the idea of what's happening here becoming like you know a fact of life like one of those things that people go off and go you know kind of shake their heads and go oh I know I know you have ideals when you're young but you know you, you have to accept the, the way the world is you know, there's a war in Ukraine. It's been going on for 10 years. You've just got to live with it. Um, that's, uh, that's, my, that's my indignant thought for the day. Um, and I'll leave it there before I rant any longer.
1: Thank you very much, Roland. Thank you so much for making time for us in your reporting. And do stay safe. Um, it, yeah, it sounds really horrible out there. And we're all thinking of you. So thank you again for joining us. Um, Dom or Francis, do you want to go next?
3: Okay, I'll jump in next. And I'd like to just respond to a a listener question, please. So, Graham, thanks for thanks for asking the question. And apologies. I've been using military wonkisms. But Graham asked what what the phrase operationally significant means. I say that the the battle for Bakhmut and certainly Solidar um, taken by if it's taken by Russia, Solidar is. And if Bakhmut is taken by Russia, that won't necessarily be operationally significant. Now, what do I mean by that? So the military talks in terms of sort of levels of activity. Right at the top there's strategic and then the middle is operations and at the bottom there's there's tactics. So individual unit actions are tactics and tanks move over this side of the wood and infantry run that side of the wood those are those are tactics. And if you think they're, they're all building blocks. So a lot of tactics build to make an operational breakthrough and then operational campaigns knit together to make a make a strategy. And so when I say when I'm talking operationally significant, I mean, for example, Russia's ejection from the north of the country in the in the first few weeks of the war. That was operationally significant because that changed that changed the face of the war, it changed the shape of the war, and certainly the time of the war. If if not the eventual outcome, because we don't know what that is yet. But it's certainly it was a major major change in in what was happening. Another operationally significant thing that might happen, hasn't haven't happened yet, but if we've spoken about it many times on the pod, if Ukraine were able to push through the Russian lines and get down to the coast, sort of through Melitopol and just to the west of Mariupol, if they were able to get to the coast there and then hold that, they would split Russia's forces into the Crimean Peninsula and just to the north and the Donbass. so Russian forces would be split in two. So that move would be operationally significant. It would it would be a major change in the war. It wouldn't necessarily bring about the end of the war immediately, but it's a fundamental alteration in the way that the war is uh, would be carried out. So, Bakhmut is a is an important city. It's a logistic node. It's as Roland's been talking about, the the road and the communication lines through there, it leads to other places. So, of course, Russia wants to take that and, and keep as they want to do, keep heading west and Ukraine don't want to give up an inch of their territory. But the loss of that of that city in and of itself does not mean that ah oh, that's going to fundamentally change the way the war is then prosecuted or, or lead to another major major operation that immediately follows on from it. So operationally significant are those major building blocks, not as big as the entire war, but equally much bigger than individual unit actions of of, of tactics of clearing trenches or cl- of clearing a hill line or moving tanks around here and and uh, and working with the artillery and, and all the rest of it. So those are very low-level, I'd shudder to use ground-level tactics because everything's ground-level ultimately, but tactics are the small little Lego blocks that build up to make operational campaigns and then they build towards a big um, strategy. So operational, the operational level, if you like, is is the middle bit, the, the big, sizable chunks of movement Russia, for example, sorry, Ukraine pushing through in Kharkiv in the east last September, that massive reversal from Russia being ejected from Kharkiv and, and the east, that was operationally significant because it really shifted the momentum for that time, um, but didn't ultimately bring about the end of the war. That's not what operational stuff does, but knit enough of them together and it will do. So, Graham, thanks for your question and I hope I've answered that and I apologise for using
0: military wonkisms. It's quite all right, Dom. Thank you. Thank you for your answer. Francis Sternley. Thanks, David. We've referenced Stalin today several times and I wanted to end with reports that ahead of the 80th anniversary of the Red Army's victory in the Battle of Stalingrad during the Second World War, new monuments to Stalin as well as Soviet generals Vasilevsky and Zhukov have been unveiled in the city, which of course today is known as Volgograd. For decades, the concerted aim has been in Russia to play down the excesses of the communist regime, the show trials, the purges, the gulags, the abuses of human rights, and the denial of individual freedom. we saw the erasure of memorial last year remembering stalin 's crimes, and this plays into that. journalists and academics have reporting for a long time, and I think alarm bells have should have been sounded earlier really in European capitals as to the culture of fear and historical distortion that Putin has been stoking for many many years now and On that theme of how warning signs are so often ignored, I was struck by a column in our paper by former editor Charles Moore, who drew attention to a piece in our paper from a 100 years ago last week. And I'll read what that report said. So the headline was, Disquieting Reports of Bavarian Situation. As I say, this is from Saturday, January 27th, 1923. The story goes on. Germany is threatened by a complication of the gravest kind. Following the success of the fascist march on Rome the previous October, Mussolini's counterpart, Adolf Hitler, has decided to declare war to the knife against the Bavarian government. This news is a very gloomy omen. This Austrian house painter, who during the war served as a simple soldier in the German army, has in Bavaria a large body of fanatically devoted adherents prepared blindly to do his bidding. The danger is wider than Bavaria. It is impossible to say what latent forces might come to the surface in his support in other parts of Germany were he once to attempt the revolution so often threatened by his disciples. So, World War II, one could argue, was predictable if people had paid attention to what academics and others were citing at the time, as I would argue were Putin's imperialist ambitions. Sadly, those warnings were ignored and Ukraine in the wider world are now paying the price for that naivety. Well, thank you, Roland, Dom and Francis. Olga Lapman
1: as our guest, would you like the very final words?
4: I wanted to thank Roland for, you know, covering the atrocities on the ground and for recognising the human toll, you know, it's taking because sometimes it escapes coverage in regular media and you just hear, you know, this attack happened, but there are actual people suffering, families dying, you know, children being left without parents. So I really wanted to thank him for that. And thank you for having me.
1: Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash latest or sign up to Dispatches our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live block on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube... Please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message and you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Giles Gear and Isabel Bouchard. And today on Twitter, Robbie Nichols.